Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Hello, my name is Pete O'Halloran. I'm a member of the pastoral care team here at Belfast City Vineyard. And we're going to be uh, continuing our journey through the gospel according to Mark. And uh, we've reached chapter two. And here Mark presents an episode in the life of Jesus. And he's going to get us to think about who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and how we can respond And uh, it's interesting, Mark typically does not um, spell this out to us. Uh, In fact, uh, you'll you'll find if you read through the gospel that there are quite a number of occasions where Mark says uh, Jesus sat down to teach the people or he he taught the crowds, and then he just doesn't tell you what Jesus said. Rather frustrating, actually. But that's because his method often is to get get something that happened, get an interaction, to put it before us in detail and then get us to step back and think about it. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look look at what happened in this case and then we're going to step back and think about it. So here we're going to do our reading. It's Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Of course, Mark doesn't tell us what he said. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralysed man? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay, so let's think about uh, our, our first question. Who is Jesus? What, what is Mark showing us about that? Well, this all took place in, in uh, the city or the small town of Capernaum. And uh, if you look earlier in the Gospel, you'll find that uh, Jesus had already been to Capernaum and he's, uh, he'd healed lots of people there. And so now he was back some days later, and obviously the paralysed man and his friends thought, well, now's our chance, let's, let's get in there, let's get our friend in front of Jesus, and he'll heal him. Uh, 
Um, so uh, they, they bring him to the house, but there's, there's, there's too many people there. They can't get him, get him in. So they get up on the roof, onto the flat roof of the house, dig a hole and let the man down right there in front of Jesus. But Jesus then says an unexpected thing. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that actually draws a bad reaction uh, from the teachers of the law who were there, the, the scribes. Now, it's important to note at this point that um, all of Israel, to a greater or lesser extent, lived their whole lives under the law of God that had been given to Moses in the Old Testament. And the scribes, these teachers of the law, they were the experts. They were the people who, uh, who knew what the law said, and they knew how it should be applied. And so when uh, an unauthorised teacher like Jesus turned up, they, they would just come along to vet him, make sure he was saying, wasn't saying anything bad or, or heretical. So here they are listening to Jesus, and he says, um, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they're absolutely scandalised by it. And actually they ask a very good question, which I think Mark, Mark is also asking us, which is this. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. Now, we all know that we, we can forgive each other. You know, if I do something against you, you can forgive me. But just imagine this. Imagine you're giving me a lift in your car. Okay, so I'm in the passenger seat. We're driving along. We arrive at the lights. We stop at the lights and bang, somebody goes into the back of us. Well, we all get out to look at the damage. And uh, I, I turn to the other driver and I say, listen, don't worry about it. Uh, I forgive you. You know, let, let it all go. You say, well, hang on a minute, this is my car. But I, I don't leave it there. I, I carry on talking to the boat and I said, actually, um, any motoring offences that you've committed, they're forgiven. You'd say, who do you think you are? Be a good question, wouldn't it? Well, Jesus is making an even bigger statement here because here's this other human being lying there before him, paralysed on his bed. And Jesus is looking at this man and saying over his whole life, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's not that the sins of the people of Israel could not be forgiven by God, but it had to happen in a particular way. What would happen is, is you would, uh, you'd bring an animal that belonged to you, you'd bring it to Jerusalem, you'd take it to the temple, you'd kill the animal, you'd give it to the priest, and the priest would take the blood from the animal and sprinkle it on the altar in the temple, and then your sins could be forgiven. But Jesus is bypassing all of that, okay? He's, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not at the temple, he hasn't got an, uh, an animal, um, and uh, there's no priest and there's no blood. He's just standing there, forgiving the man's sins on his own authority. Who does he think he is? And Mark, I think, is raising that question for us. Who do you think he is? that he would say something like that. Well, Jesus knows in his spirit what the scribes are thinking, what these teachers of the law are thinking. Well, how does he respond? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't make things easier. Actually, he, he raises the stakes. He says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. 
Let's pause for a moment and think about that phrase, the Son of Man. Did you notice that? Jesus said um, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When he says the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. And in fact, it's Jesus' favourite way of talking about himself. He says it 12 more times in Mark. This is the first time he says it, but 12 more times he talks about himself as the Son of Man. Well, what, does it, what does it mean? Well, uh, it has two meanings in the Bible. The first ordinary meaning is a human being. The son of a man is another man. So it just means a human being. And you see that, for example, in the book of Ezekiel. The second meaning, though, is taken from um, the book of Daniel. And here, in chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And the vision is of one like a son of man. And this one like a son of man, this apparent human being, is brought before God, brought before the throne of God, and he's given... Um, complete authority over the whole earth forever and ever. So it's just a sort of amazing divine figure who seems to be equal with God himself. And Jesus, in fact, explicitly identifies himself with this son of man, Daniel, son of man, when he's on trial for his life before the high priest. And again, he's accused of blasphemy. Okay, so Jesus is really backing everybody into a corner here about his identity. Who is he? How can he say these things? And we have to answer that question ourselves. And sometimes people say, oh yes, Jesus, he's a a great teacher. Or Jesus, yes, he's a wonderful example. But actually what's happening here is that Jesus, a man, is stepping into God's place. Has he the right to do that? Well, it looks like he does, because to show that he has that authority, he He speaks to the man who's completely paralysed, lying there on his bed, and says, get up, pick up your bed and walk. And the man does. So his authority there is authenticated. So what we see here, what Mark is presenting to us, is the Son of God doing the will of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we should take from that is this. When Jesus Christ forgives your sins... They stay forgiven. They really are forgiven. There isn't a higher authority. There's no greater judge. There's no court of appeal. If he forgives you, you are forgiven. Okay, well, that leads us on to our uh, second question, which is, well, what does Jesus do? We've already touched on it there. Now, in thinking about this, I want us to realise that um, Jesus healed hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. But Mark picks this particular healing to put before us. Why does he do that? I think he does that because this man's physical state mirrored his spiritual state. And in fact, is a picture of our spiritual state also. His friends brought him, and naturally, understandably, they were looking for a physical healing, weren't they? But Jesus had another priority. What was his priority? What did he say to the man first? Son, your sins are forgiven. And that lets us, that raises the question for us, doesn't it? What is our biggest problem? You would have thought, you know, if you're completely paralysed, your biggest problem is you're completely paralysed. You know, it doesn't get worse than that really, does it? But Jesus thinks there's a a bigger problem, and the bigger problem is sin. Sin is our biggest problem. Sin, a very old-fashioned word. What do we mean by sin? 
Well, sin is when we choose our way over God's way. I'll say that again. Sin is when we choose our way instead of or over God's way. Well, what is God's way? Well, we can summarise it like this. God says, love your neighbour as yourself. God says, whatever you would like somebody to do to you, you do it to them. Jesus said that we should love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. That's God's way. And when we do that, when we do that, other people are helped, um, goodness spreads, and, uh, and life gets better. But too often, it's true, isn't it? We say, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I know better. I think I know how to have a good life. And it's not that. I'm going to do things my way. And when you see it put, put out like that, you think, well, not only is it, it wrong to go against God, it's stupid to go against God. Because obviously, his way is the best way. So, sin is our biggest problem. Why is it such a problem? Okay, so the first thing that happens with sin is it puts a barrier up between us and God. It leads us away from God. And think about it, God is our creator. God is the one who made you, who made me, who sustains us, every cell of our bodies. He's the one that, that gives us life. So when we put up a barrier between us and the source of our life, everything starts to go wrong. Sin is also disobedience to God. God has the right to tell us what to do, and it's wrong when we disobey him. Also, sin typically brings suffering to other people. And for both those reasons, uh, God justly punishes our sin. And so you find that if you persist in sin, your soul and your life begins to fall apart. Uh, We experience suffering. Eventually we experience death. And if we persist in walking away from God, then eventually we'll find ourselves eternally, permanently separated from him. Separated from everything good, everything delightful, everything satisfying, left on our own with only things that are are horrible and, and disgusting and just bring no life at all. I should say here that... Um, I don't want to give the wrong impression that the Bible doesn't teach that there's a one-to-one relationship between sin and suffering. Sometimes our sins lead directly to suffering, don't they? So if I, if I get into a road rage and I drive too fast and I crash my car and I hurt myself, well, you know, that's my sin leading to my suffering. But if you were the unfortunate passenger and you get hurt, well, it's not your fault. It's my sin that's having an impact on you. Also, there's plenty of occasions where we just suffer and we get ill or we die because we live in a fallen world. It's not because of our particular sins. Still, sin is our problem. But what if sin could be reversed? What if we could be forgiven? And all those things begin to be put right. If sin can be taken away, we are reunited with God. The barrier is taken away. Our Our souls and our lives begin to work properly. When we die, we will see Jesus immediately face to face. And when Jesus returns, we'll be raised from the dead and spend eternity with him and with all his people in a life of love and joy and satisfaction. 
Now, Jesus is certainly concerned with the man's physical and social situation, isn't he? He doesn't leave him paralysed. He transforms his situation. But think of this. If that paralysed man had been healed and walked out the door and his sins had not been forgiven, his main problem would still be there. What else does this episode tell us about what sin is like? Well, one of the things is that it's not not just that we choose to sin. Sometimes, and you'll know this yourself, you want to do the right thing, you decide to do the right thing, and you end up doing the wrong thing. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to tell the truth about this, but you end up telling a lie. You think, um, I'm, I'm going to be kind, but you end up being slightly cruel to somebody. You think, I'm going to forgive somebody, but you end up taking a little bit of revenge. You think, I'm not going to, not going to talk about them, but you end up gossiping. So, and those are sort of relatively trivial things, but that, you know, we, we all know that there can be really awful things that we do and we just don't know why we've done them. We kick ourselves after, why did I do that? I knew I shouldn't do that. I've done it again. Every time it makes me miserable and horrible and just feel terrible, I keep on coming back to it. And that's because sin isn't just about the individual wrong acts that we do. Sin actually is a power, a power of corruption in our lives. It deceives us. It enslaves us. It paralyzes us. So like this paralyzed man that Mark puts before us, we are helpless to overcome our sin. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, that's a bit, that's a bit strong. You know, it's a bit extreme. I'm not that bad. You know, I do, I do, well, certainly I don't do good all the time, but I do lots of good things. And if I really wanted to, I, I, could, I could do the right thing. But have you really tried, really, really tried to live a really virtuous, loving life? Well, one man who who did try was uh, C.S. Lewis. He famously wrote the Narnian Chronicles, as you know, and uh, was also uh, a great uh, defender of the Christian faith. But when he was a young man, um, he actually was an atheist. However, he began to suspect that God existed and he decided, well, if there really is some sort of God, then actually I have to start to try and live a good life. And he decided then to make a serious effort to, to live a life of, of love and, and virtue. Well, this is what he writes about his experience. Really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. If you're still not convinced, let me issue a challenge to you. Just live according to God's way for 48 hours. Okay, so remember what that is. Okay, all you've got to do is to love your neighbour with the same uh, creativity and diligence and persistence and energy as you love yourself. All you've got to do is to do unto others all the time what you would want them to do for you. All you've got to do is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. Just for 48 hours, okay? Just, Just give it a go. Come back and tell me if you manage it. But maybe you're actually at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're thinking, 
I'm just too bad. Maybe it's not news to you that sin deceives, that it enslaves, that it paralyzes. Well, I want you to realize that if that's how you're feeling, this story is really good news for you. Because Jesus sees this man in his paralyzed state and he and he says and he says to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus not only forgives this paralyzed man, but he heals him, doesn't he, and makes him new. And I think that is a picture Mark is giving to us, that it isn't just that the man's sins are forgiven, but actually he's made new. He's made into a new person. He becomes a new creation. And Paul talks about this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Let's have a look at that. Therefore, says Paul, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what Paul is saying is that when you put your trust in Jesus, somehow, spiritually, you are joined to him. You're put in Christ. You become one with him. You, um, God, God sees you all wrapped up in Christ. And, and, and that means that you just get this new life. You become a new person. Now, there are many benefits that come with that, but I just want to focus on one, and that is something called justification. Well, what does that mean? Justification is a declaration of righteousness. It's where somebody says over you, who has the right to say it, you are righteous, you are in the right, you are not guilty. And think about it, that, that is different from forgiveness, isn't it? Uh, if I forgive you, I'm saying, you are guilty, but I forgive you. But if you're justified, I'm saying, you're not guilty, you're righteous, you're a good person. Uh, Paul goes on in uh, the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, to say this. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what's going on here is like a divine exchange. What God is doing is he's taking our record of sin, of failure, of selfishness, of all the things that we're ashamed of. And actually, he's putting it on Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to treat Jesus as if he's a sinner. And then he's taking Jesus' record of a perfect life, of righteousness, of goodness, of holiness, of love. And he's putting that on us. So an exchange takes place. We become the righteousness of God. Well, how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself like that? I mean, it's a great thing to know that you are completely forgiven. That's wonderful, isn't it? But in some ways, it's an even greater thing to know that God looks at you in Christ and he says this, you are completely righteous, completely good in my sight, because I see you hidden in the life, death and resurrection of my wonderful son. Well, that would put a spring in your step, wouldn't it? That would make you pick up your bed and walk. And you know there's a paradox that happens here, because um, when we know that we are good in God's sight, and we realise that it's, it doesn't depend on our behaviour, it doesn't depend on our own good works, actually this sets free a power in our lives, a power to change us. 
so that we actually start to walk free from sin. Our, our lives actually change and we begin to do the good and the loving things we're called to do. And Paul talks about this in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice that. They receive this abundance of grace. It's a free gift of righteousness. They don't earn it. It's just given to them. And what's the result? They reign in life. They're not lying down under everything. Things aren't on top of them. They're on top. They're the people who are in Christ and who are reigning in life. Okay, on to our third question. How do we respond to all of this? How do we receive this forgiveness? How do we get joined to Christ and receive his life and his righteousness? The answer to that is through faith. Well, what do we mean by faith? Sometimes uh, if you're talking to people you know, about being a Christian, they'll say to you, oh, you know, I, I wish I could have faith. They say, you know, as if, as if it's sort of like something that happens to you. Or, or they try and muster it up. You know, say, well, I wish I could believe, I must believe. But they just, they just can't. But actually something different is happening here. What, is it, what does Mark show us about faith? Mark says Jesus saw their faith. Now, he doesn't mean that he somehow looked into their hearts and saw their faith. Actually, he looked up at the ceiling and the ceiling was coming down and this bloke was coming down in front of him on a bed. That's what Jesus saw and he saw their faith. In other words, he saw, oh, they believe in me so much they'll bring the bloke through the roof to plonk him in front of me so that I'll do something about him. Um, And so, you know, faith actually can be expressed in what we do. Uh, Just imagine that I've made my wife a lovely kitchen chair, okay, and I bring it to her and say, there you are, darling, lovely chair, isn't it nice? Oh, very nice, she says. I said, you know, it's it's really strong, you know, it'll, it'll... It'll take you away. She, I'm sure it will, she, she says. But she hasn't shown any faith in it till she's actually sat down. Now, she might be unwise to do that, given my carpentry skills, but actually that's how she would show her faith, by sitting on the chair. Well, what could we do then to receive from Jesus? Well, one thing we could do actually is to pray. Okay, Put this into words before God. Just say to him, uh, Lord, I would really like to be forgiven. Jesus if you're real, if you're there, if you can help me, please give me a new life. Put it into prayer. He will see that. You could read the Bible. You could read the Gospel of Mark as we're going through it in church. You could come to church. Now, we can come to church in a sort of routine way, can't we? Like, yes, it's my duty, I will go to church. But what about coming to church in faith? What about deliberately before you come to church say Jesus I'm coming to you when I go to church please do something in my life whatever you're looking for or whatever other practical step you could take that will show Jesus so that he could see your faith finally let's think about how our sins can be forgiven how our lives can be made new Jesus in this passage asks the uh, the teachers of the law a significant question he says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk which is easier to pronounce forgiveness or healing 
Well, we would think actually that it's a bit easier to do the forgiveness thing because, well, who could tell whether the bloke's forgiven or not? Whereas if he's going to actually stand up and walk out or not, uh, you can see that happening, can't you? Or not happening. So it seems like healing him is more difficult. But is it? Actually, it's far harder for the man's sins to be forgiven. That's the bigger job. That is going to cost Jesus absolutely everything. Let me point out a strange parallel. This paralysed man was carried to Jesus on his bed, wasn't he? He was helpless. He couldn't move an inch. Jesus then forgave his sins, set him free from both his sin and his sickness, and he walked away carrying his bed. But let's think about Jesus approaching his death. He approached his death carrying his cross. And when he got to the place of execution, he was nailed to his cross. He was helpless. He couldn't move an inch. And Jesus didn't walk away. He stayed there, pinned to the cross. He was treated as a sinner, suffering the judgment of God that should have fallen on that paralysed man and that should fall on you and me. But it fell on Jesus. And where was the blood? Was a, there was no animal blood, but there was plenty of blood there. Whose blood was it? It was the blood of the Lord Jesus poured out, his life poured out before God so that we could walk free. And that tremendous sacrifice, that's more than enough for your sins and my sins to be forgiven, whatever they are. It's more than enough to make us completely righteous, completely good people in the sight of God. It's more than enough to make you a new person who reigns in life. So come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Take a step of faith. He will forgive your sins and set you free to live a new life. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.